Dhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami teaching is, we understand that they have this uh, sense of a, the Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, uh, quite a structured thing, thing that works in terms of structures. Um, and very often, uh, say, the, with the Theravada approach particularly, it can seem a bit dry because there's so much structural teaching and it, it's not necessarily effulgent or kind of full of, of rapturous statements um, you know, this because this really is like the rapturous statements are what you make when you do the when you do the practice <laughs> that's the idea <laughs> so you don't need to just kind of import them from from books or from other people it's it's something that is a kind of personal um, experience it's sort of personal saying the other the other night was the term that kind of a measured ecstasy. It's a sort of something that's ecstatic, but it arises through a particular measured and systematic process, and it's eightfold path. Mm. This is, uh, and the Buddha seemed very determined in his whole teaching career to establish these references to the eightfold path, to the um, to various, uh, you know. Systematic, systematic approach. It may be his own experience. He'd spent many years um, trying to realize the way to, to liberation or to the deathless or enlightenment. And he hadn't really had any teachers. He just kind of gone along with what was going on in those days. Um, you know, some of the lifestyle was a pretty kind of ragged, shaggy kind of bunch of, of wanderers uh, who, you know, basically as long as it hurt, it must be doing you good. Seemed to be one of the fundamental tenets of the Samana life. Um, so that, you know, it's kind of crude system. Uh, and, and then you, you just basically just put pressure on until something gives, I guess, is the idea. And even though... Some of the lifestyle may be quite rare. That, that mentality still pertains in, in in various religious and spiritual practices. You just kind of, you know, it can be quite simple, simplistic. Just push on something, or either push yourself into something and grab as much as you can, or force yourself out of something. Um, the, the 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 excesses of either martyrdom, renunciation, flagellation. Um, this kind of thing, or the uh, or the opposite extreme of uh, excesses of of uh, you know sort of sensual things, or uh, and in fact these are the two extremes that the Buddha first taught about uh, when he was trying to bring his teaching across. The first teaching he gave was something which was actually quite effulgent, just a statement of "I am the All Enlightened One." This kind of presenting himself, and the person he presented it to basically said, "Well, very nice, good. So what?" <laughs> there wasn't any teaching in it. It was true, true presentation, but there wasn't any any teaching in it. So then he went back to his five colleagues and thought to teach them. Um, and so he taught. The first thing he he kind of his presentation was firstly, these are the things you shouldn't follow: um, indulgence uh, in in sensuality. That is a kind of gratification impulse. The gratification impulse is something not to be followed. And the denial, mortification impulse is not to be followed. These, these two, two extremes. And he said the, the path is, is middle. It's not either of these two extremes. And we can, you know, you can recognize those two extremes 
as um, you know, in terms of one's life, in terms of people's lives, in terms perhaps more deeply of kind of psychological tendencies to punish, punish yourself, um, teach yourself a lesson, whip yourself into shape kind of attitudes, and to uh, let it all hang out, be authentic, feel who you are, and that kind of thing, which is more or less just let it, you know, like get into whatever you're doing and that's all right. Um, and yet the middle way is, is neither of those. It's, uh, it's, it, it involves a certain amount of, of, of form, formality to it. Um, this form based on, on the principles of kamma, of good, good actions giving good results. Um, particular definite, ser- definite set of this is right, this is wrong. In terms of kamma, in terms of action. And this, this then forms when the mind is trained to observe this and attuned to that pattern in experience, in its own volitional experience, in its own intending experience, in its own value experience, in its own pleasure pain experience, you know, to see the pattern of this is, this, this leads you on to unhelpful, unskillful, depressing, confused states of mind. This leads you on to, to, to glad, relieved, joyful, easeful states of mind. Just to begin to witness that pattern in, in terms of what the, what the mind, what the heart seeks, what it does, in terms of the way we think and act. Mm-hmm. No, that, that pattern established rather than what immediately feels good or what are, the, what are the psychological compulsions that are there that are often set up in a strange relationship to the, to the sensory appetites. You know, you can find yourself following a, following sense desire, and then every now and then, you know, punishing yourself for it or pulling out of it, getting into this kind of pattern. And neither of these patterns are very skillful, and they tend to they tend to regenerate each other. Middle way means that you begin to note, take note. You know, first of all, to, to if you like, to, to, to step into a non-judgmental witnessing, just to see how is it, what are the things in my life that have led me on, what are the things that I regret now? You know, what are the things I can, you know, I can't understand it, or what things can I understand as leading me to a place where I feel peaceful, happy with myself, at ease with myself. I can hold my head up, I feel at ease with, with, with fellow fellow beings, and what are the ones that make me feel ashamed, guilty, I don't even want to think about, make me feel restless and irritable. So just beginning to reflect like that, so that uh, you begin to realise there is another pattern, the pattern of karma, which is witnessable, which your mind can attune to, which is different from the pattern of either sense, sensuality, or these other psychological compulsions, which are called the compulsions to be something, to form a position, and these two are, are the, the, um, you know, these are the unholes, unhelpful uh, patterns of, of behaviour. So. I think the, the sense, sensual aspect is fairly easy to see, but the, the compulsion to be something is, is a more rarefied thing, or perhaps difficult to, to, to immediately get a hold of. So it's particularly to do with, with, uh, with who you're uh, establishing yourself, like what establishes yourself as being something, or as, if you like, as being nothing. You know, it's, take, it's making a personal statement out in your life. Um, so that that you can see, for example, how s- some particular things that we looked, we look at, we we move towards the way we behave are associated. If you really witness it, with how we think other people will see us, with certain kind of performance things, you know, so that one looks good, or one, you know, a, a, one is seen in a certain light, one has power, or one has status, or one is accredited with something. Um, you know, the, the, in something that, that lifts, that, that solidifies you, and there are certain uh, comp- uh, attitudes and activities which are about avoiding that, with about slipping out, with about being a ghost, you know, about you know being a nobody, 
they're about not being noticed. Um, uh, you know, like like avoiding, say, responsibility or avoiding, um, you know, taking any any position on things. And these these two, um, if you like, are are, are both unfort- un- unhelpful because they always set oneself up in in a particular pattern that's contradictory to the experience that's going on. You're either trying to make more of the experience <laughs> of, your, uh, of, of your relationship with other people and accumulate something and, you know, if you like, feed your ego on it and become somebody. So you're trying to actually, you know, extract something from a situation and, and, and you know, and, and feed on it, feed your ego on it, or you're trying to avoid something and slip out of it, you know. And these these two tendencies called bhava and vibhava, these are tendencies to be something or to be nothing, uh, to to either uh, accumulate experience or to 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 avoid it. And uh, the Buddha pointed these out as as not just being something that's kind of rather secondary, esoteric, but really quite fundamental. Um, that we may not be. You know, continually in one or the other, but the mind tends to oscillate around those two poles, particularly in relationship to to um, to uh, people, to society, to actions, to how one sees oneself in a group, um, and the, or to to particular one sets up stratagems. So even um, uh, spiritual path or meditative path, even one's living it alone, gets dogged by these two stratagems. You can one can see in one's mind the idea of, of you know enlightenment being something that I am filled by. So I become something that's kind of full, confident, radiant, and so on, or something of that nature. Or we can consider enlightenment as being an out, get me out, get me out of all this, so I don't have to feel it. Uh, and so that you know those kinds of things are somewhere in in the back of the mind or even in the front of the mind as things we're aiming for. You know, we think that uh, meditation practice or liber- or the you know um, practice of awareness might be some way in which one becomes larger and fuller and bigger and and more more, or that one becomes less and less and less and uh, you know s- slips out as it were. Of it all, and perhaps the mind can kind of waver in between those two models. Some days you're into one, and some days you're into the other, um, depending on what's coming at you and where you feel yourself to be. The important thing in terms of practice is to to is to keep checking out some of these goals that may not even be articulated. They're kind of emotionally felt. And then when you recognize the path, the Eightfold Path, it is, it is, it's neither of those, really. You know, it's neither in nor out. It's kind of like, it's with the way it is. It's very much of bringing your awareness and attention onto what's happening to you. So you notice if, if, you, if you're meditating with this underlying kind of nagging feeling of let it go away, make it go away, make things go away, we should all stop. Then you, you, this, this taint of negativity keeps kind of haunting it. And, and what happens is you, you set up an, an, a negative uh, sensitivity to the experience that's going on. Your, your, negati- your sensitivity is attuned in a negative way, so that everything is a nuisance. Or, or, or a burden, or a problem, or a hassle, or it's sort of defilements, or something like that. So even walking up and down a path can get to be difficult because your mind is attuned to not that not to not experiencing something. So because of that, everything that it does experience is registered in a negative way, and therefore is emphasised by that. Mm-hmm. It's like, rather likely you have a kind of an allergy to something. Then as soon as you get a little touch of it, then you get a violent reaction to it. 
Similarly, when you have this, this taint of Vibhava, it's rather like you, you've declared yourself allergic to existence. <laughs> so that even the slightest whiff of it, of any kind of phenomenon, and then you, you feel, oh dear, it's, you, you actually get quite a, a, a strong reaction to it. And it's not just something you make up. <coughs> having set your mind in that way, or, or perhaps to be more fair about it, the mind having, been, having set itself in that way, having locked into that pattern, then finds that it, that pattern is justified by the, the, miserable, the miserable quality that, that experience seems to manifest without recognizing that something in ourselves is making it so, something in ourselves is making it miserable, oppressive, burdensome, and so much that I have to do. And, uh, you know, this is something that, that can happen walking up and down a meditation path, and it, it certainly can happen in in other things too, where it, where it finds more, more statistics to back it up, more realities to back it up. And uh, bhava is always that sense of there's something I should be now, something I should get to now. You have that one haunting you, walking up and down your meditation path, it's a continual experience of, you haven't got it yet, you haven't got it yet, you're not there yet, when are you going to get it yet? You can't do it now, can you? Because you haven't got it. It's about getting something and you haven't got it. Where is it? You know? And the very mind that's looking for something to have and something to be is actually looking past, looking over, out of focus, so you don't actually see the thing that you, that you already have, that you already are, if you like. It's rather like your hand's in front of your face, but your eyes are out of focus, so you keep seeing through the fingers, wondering where your hand's gone. Because you, you, your eyes are looking too far. The simple, in meditation, the simple remedy for this, so that it can be um, quite challenging, is to continue to just pull your mind into the present. And why it's challenging is because in, when you, I say pull your mind into the present, actually it's more like opening your mind into the present. And that's, that, the challenge of that is that one is um, uh, sensitive, uh, uncertain, spontaneous, um, there are no boundaries, no edges, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. Because you, you, you haven't got a system, you haven't got a strategy, you haven't got a future, you haven't got a past. And these, you, then you begin to recognize why Baba and Vibhava are so compulsory, because even if they're miserable, they at least make us real. They give us substance of a kind of ghostly and creepy nature. But any substance is better than nothing at some times. So just can, you know, when we ask ourselves how much of our life is spent trying to be something or trying to get out of where we are, how much of our life is spent trying to make sure that we have more of what we, what's here or to get out of what's here. And so it's always sensitizing to experience in that, in that way, in that comparative way. Do I, does this, do I like this? Do I not like it? Does it, what does it do to me, rather than what is it, which is the, in the present. It's what is it, how is it. And that takes quite a bit of doing, I must admit. Sometimes when you, you just, you know, open your mind to the present, it's rather like it's, um, it's almost like a, a, a shock reaction of, of not having um, these kind of positions to... To, to measure things through. And I think it's because of this that the whole structuring of the Eightfold Path is so essential to give us some boundaries, and not just conceptual boundaries, but for the mind to establish itself in a particular pattern that's not about me being something or about me being nothing, about me being big or me being small. It's about what is good. And that... The, the more the mind actually begins to attune to that pattern, that pattern forms the structure within which we can release our ego cravings to be or to not be. We can give them up. Without that, well, the Buddha taught, taught no path apart from that. I guess he felt that it just wasn't possible. That without that structure of karma, of good karma, without that pattern, you must, your mind will 
always form other patterns of behavior associated with self. I am or I am not. things to, to recognise in terms of, of the pattern of karma. There's also one which is which is uh, karma is about particular moral quality of one's intention whether it's generous, kind whether it's greedy or whether it's ab- the absence of greed whether it's about simplicity, letting go whether it's about loving or hating, these kinds of fairly discernible things um, there's also uh, another way in which karma is talked about, which is about um, association with particular groups or with particular people, specifically with, with people. Let's say we use that as the, one of the prime examples. So it's not just doing, doing good, but also connecting to particular people. Um, in the, for example, in the, the Sigalika Sutta and uh, the Mangala Sutta, these suttas particularly describe things such as one's parents, um, one's wife, one's children. Um, for lay people, the contact, the, the connection with the summoners, uh, summoners to feel they have a teacher or each other, you know, or the Buddha. They have certain people that they belong to or bond with in particular ways. So, um, this I think is, is, is something that the, the, the Buddha established perhaps less, consist, less emphatically, partly I imagine because in, in Vedic India those, those connections were already present. You have a very strong in, in, in Indian society, even now, you have very strong family connections, right out to cousins and uncles, grandparents, and so on. It's very that's the basic thing. You don't have um, you don't have other things. You have that. You have your caste, your subcaste. You, you fit like that. Now you know where you are. Um, and this is certainly the case in in Thailand, and it must have been the case in pre-industrial Europe, but uh, it's it's less the case now. Yeah. So you had particular family relationships that were very strong, and that meant that um, you had particular kinds of, of ways of sensitizing to those people. Yeah. Uh, even now, you know, the, the um, classical, I'm not saying that everybody still holds this, but the, the classical... Um, attitude in marriage is like you know you get married and maybe you like your husband or your wife maybe you don't maybe you get one you like or maybe you get one you don't like but basically that's still your old man or your wife or whatever and then then you have a particular relationship and ways of working with each other that you, that you carry out as best you can and eventually you probably even like each other maybe or sometimes you do sometimes you don't you know that's because that's the, in terms of liking and disliking the jitta the, the mind is a, is a, is a fickle creature. Um, sometimes you, you, know, you don't like people not because of anything they're doing, just because you happen to be feeling bad. So it's, it's um, you know, when you feel ill or tired or worn out, then you don't particularly feel tremendous, um, you don't necessarily feel a lot of liking for somebody. Um, and I, th- I think that that... that Understanding, um, though it's patently obvious, is not in the kind of romantic mythology of the West where you're supposed to love each other always. Even though you, that very burden to love each other always means that you end up hating each other always. <laughs> compelled, compelled to love somebody forever till death us do part is kind of like, well, you know. You feel it's, it's disappointing and betraying, rather than well, I may not like you all the time, but I'll I'll 
do these various things, like I'll be faithful to you, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do the housework and you bring in the, the food or whatever. These kind of things are, are, are maybe less, less glamorous, but they can be done. Whereas liking somebody all the time may sound glamorous, but can you do it? <laughs> Let alone, you know, a state of kind of rapture in each other's presence <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a norm. You know, <laughs> it's a great idea, but can you know, when you place that upon somebody, I mean, you know, it's, it's really quite a burden. So the Buddha was, um, you know, laid down that kind of, or, or underlined that particular thing. You know, one's father, one's mother, one's husband, one's wife, one's children. Um, then, you know, you like them, you don't like them, you're having a good time, you're having a bad time. Still, there are certain things that one carries out. Certain ways of honouring, certain ways of, of caring for, certain ways of, of recognising, you know, a relationship. And this is the basis of right livelihood, really. You know, the right livelihood is about, certainly it's about just kind of making a physical living, but it's also how one conducts one's life, you know. Because, of course, livelihood means much more than... When the Buddha talked about food, he meant food for the heart as well as food for the belly. And food for the heart includes mental volition, includes sensory impressions, includes consciousness. So these are the things that one should really see as as the basis of what keeps you alive as a function as a an aware sensitive human being, not just as a kind of as a physical functioning body. He was also quite keen that, that that kind of way of relating was established in the Sangha. And this was perhaps even more testing. Um, the most difficult uh, people to teach Seem to have been the monks. The most, some of the, sometimes the most, you know, easy, but otherwise the most difficult. His first attempt with a group of five who had been his old friends was nearly a disaster from the start. He turned up; they didn't want to see him. Here is a fully enlightened Buddha, walked I don't know how many hundred miles to, you know, over the other side of um, of well, to Uttar Pradesh as it is now, but to Varanasi from Bodhgaya, which is quite a trek, in order to give him this really special enlightened teaching on the way to complete transcendence and bliss. They said, oh, is it dropout Gautama <laughs> turned up? There has been a failure. couldn't hack it as an ascetic. So they didn't want to see him. He tried three times. You know, and eventually he just kind of psyched them into it. <laughs> Whereas you know, the lay people seemed a little more kind of open and, and devout, you know. And uh, the early summoners tended to give the Buddha a hard time. Of, of all of his disciples, they're the ones who were the most, could be the most truculent and, and difficult. And so one of the first things he says was, um, when they said, oh, there's old Gautama, what are you doing? He said, you, can't talk to, you shouldn't talk to me like that anymore. You don't, you don't address me as, your, as friend, which must have been something like mate, you know. <laughs> You don't address a fully enlightened one as mate. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, what, what was he on about? Was he being kind of snobbish or what? You know, why was he so concerned about that? And you, you, this occurs a few times in the suttas where the Buddha says, you shouldn't, don't, don't address me like that. You know? The sense of, you know, there's a, there's a particular formality here that is really necessary for the mind to actually open into, a, into the right space. If it's just, what's your mate, how are you doing? <laughs> then we're down to, well, this is what I think, this is what you think, great, well, let's go and have, have down the pub and have a drink and talk about it, play darts or whatever. Um, you know? Uh, the sense of formality is not, is not a kind of like a statement of, of power so much as we have to enter into a, a relationship where your mind really stops and listens. Listens very deeply. Hmm? You don't do that with your mates. Yeah. The mind just kind of, you know, the, the, the bonding of that kind of friendship is not one of associated with a, a deep investigative listening. It's associated with just kind of, um, you know, personality. 
um, conjoining and friendship and reassurance and these things. But the, the pattern that the Buddha was you know, bringing across was, now this requires you really listening and, and questioning very deeply your most basic <coughs> assumptions. So this you have to listen up now. Um, and that, that way of, if you like, kind of creating a certain sense of, of structure within which a person was supposed to attend and listen. So you're saying that the, the karma there, if you like, is to establish a particular relationship pattern. We can see it very much in the kind of duties that are that are towards fellow family members, um, you know, in order to, to properly to listen through the ups and downs, the likings and the dislikings, the understandings and the misunderstandings, to actually get past that and to, to connect at a deeper level than that. And in terms of Dhamma, to connect at a deeper level than just, you know, um, whether you like somebody or dislike them or whatever. You know, to, so you stab that particular patterning then again takes you to a deeper place or a place that's conducive to, to a more long-lasting and far-reaching uh, goals than just the fluctuations that the jitta makes. Commitment. You're not sure. Commitment means that often you have to, you have to go against what you feel. right now and this is very difficult so certainly that that, um, that way of relating it has to be supported by um, by authenticity so the Buddha is saying you know can say you have to listen to me basically because his whole intention is for your well-being and he does actually know. It's not just, I want to be important, I want to have power over you, but I do know and I have something that is really for your well-being. And the Buddha is totally certain of that and totally peaceful about that and saying, I know you can hear this, I know you can do this, you know, We've been together. I know you can do this. This will help you. So really, you know, make use of this. It's not just I'm trying to show off, you know, or I'm trying to be important. So that that whole kind of thing comes from a very much, it's, if you like, a hierarchy, hierarchical principle that's established um, where the person, if you like, at the top of the hierarchy in that particular situation is manifesting sort of, well, for the welfare and the well-being of those he teaches. Mm-hmm. Similarly, you can compare this to the household duties of the, if you like, the, the 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 employer to the employee, and it says the employer um, should make sure the employee gets proper wages, gets holidays, you know, that their work is complemented. These kind of things. He doesn't just say, make sure he gets as much as he can out of the employee, and make sure that if they take a day off, he busts them for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like saying, you know, the whole function of, if you like, the leader in that situation is is that he manifests and expresses um, kindness and generosity. So the relationship, if you like, are, is not one of a power and domination, but but leading through that. Um, and similarly, the, if you like, the servant is there to look after in, in that situation to try to to um, do well for the master, if you like. And similarly, the kind of husband-wife things are about mutual support with a sense of, of, of expressing care through that. And, and that's certainly the way that the Buddha expected it to be in the Sangha. And um, so the... the one of the first things he laid down, he recognises that as his summoner discipleship grew, was he had he couldn't do it all alone. So he had to have teachers, other people, other summoners who were uh, also, you know, um, in, in advanced and down. Their practice was fulfilled in many ways, 
um, either completely or they had a degree of fulfilment, and that therefore they would take on the responsibility of disciples. And would, the, there's a whole um, kind of sections of, of the teachings which are just about the relationship between the teacher and the disciple, which is one of mutual care and respect, and where the disciple actually looks after the teacher and the teacher looks after the disciple in their various modes. And that, rather than, you know, this one's better than you and he's the boss and you've got to do what I say kind of thing. Uh, and then the pupil thing, well, I'll do this for three years, I'll get to be a teacher and I can do it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. It's, it's, it's entering into that. Because if you... That is, is actually a human and practical way to attune yourself to what is skillful karma. You're using the human relationship situation to see and to, to understand what is skillful karma. Yeah. When we're in a relationship with each other, then we can think, we can either think of ourselves all the time and just forget the other person. You know, or, 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 um, be looking to impress other people, you know, to make people impress other people. We can be doing other, we'll be looking, using other people to somehow to, to validate ourselves or even trying to get out of the whole thing altogether, out of any kind of way of relating to others. And these are old, these are the same kind of manifestations of bhava and vibhava that, that are bane of the, of the mind's psychology. Don't need anywhere. I guess in community life, you know, there are, the mind could swing around and we can sometimes feel that the idea of being on one's own, you know, you can look at that side of the practice, can be a, a veil over this vibhava, like, I don't want to bother, I don't want to be with pe- people. You can actually, when the mind gets stressed, the, the, the things, it's almost like a, a veil starts to come over it, where something it just begins to, to shut people out. Or we can be looking for affirmations and reassurances from each other, these are things to, to recognize, you know, not to be hard or harsh about, but to recognize how the mind does tip and tilt around in that. And then to, to consider, well, this, you know, the, the relationship, it's a, in, the, in the Buddhist community, the lay people and the Sangha, and then within the Sangha, is one that potentially helps us if we use it rightly. It does, it does, it's there to teach us some of the um, these lessons of good karma. Which can be difficult for people because they don't necessarily have much modelling in terms of social relationship to fall back on. Or what they fall back on is afflicted. So, you know, in, in the Metta Sutra it says things like even as a mother with a, you know... Um, protects with her life, her child, her only child. You know, it's kind of, the mother there is, is a sort of totally ideal mother figure, protecting and defending and nourishing with her very life, her only child. And it can be, you know, when you think of your mother, think of the person in old bag who used to beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, have this nice nourishing mother figure, you have some kind of old crone figure, or my dad used to get drunk every Friday <laughs> Come and kick my mum around or something like that, rather than the, you know the, the the wise protective father. So you know, family relationships aren't always that always that skillful. So so that then you know these these things. One's father, one's mother, one's brothers and sisters often establish a particular way you relate to to other people. And then when you come into the, say the you know into any community life. Then you begin to see these impressions of your father, your mother, your sisters, your brothers. You know, this sister whose head you used to jump up and down on. <laughs> your brother who used to steal your sweets. <laughs> your dad who was never sober. Your mum was always going nuts and bashing you around. And then you, be, you get these kind of feelings coming up or, or projecting. So... Um, uh, uh, so it, it, it's very important to, to, to really work on these 
because otherwise you're always going into trying to, you know, live up to somebody, please people, make sure you don't get blamed, make sure that you get your share. If you've been in a large family, then uh, I remember one nun telling me she had a family of six, and they had six brothers, and she was the youngest sister. So, you know, she had to, always trying to get something to eat. <laughs> Just get a share in the table was a major thing. <laughs> you know, six brothers is not, not good news. <laughs> So you can feel, I don't know how it is for you, you know, you can feel quite competitive with the other people in the group or mistrustful or just, you know, uncaring. Or it, or it doesn't count, you know. I think many people have been in these in families which are really dysfunctional. So the, the other people don't really count. It doesn't really matter. They're just other humans wandering around in this void. And, you know, so what? So then one's kind of indifference begins to take over, get out. Essentially it's a form of getting out, Vibhava. Don't bother me. Well, we seek something in each other. Please tell me I'm all right. When the mind is is been habituated in those particular patterns, then it's it's really important to you know not to 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 recognise how those things manifest, and into you can't just through through sensitivity alone is not enough. You can be very sensitive to it and feel it, but you know the mind actually needs something, some form to to moor itself to to pull out of that. So we have these other uh, relationships models of serving, of looking after, of, you know, attending to, of duties and responsibilities that, are, that we carry out um, with a feeling of, of trying to bring around well-being in other, be- other people. That's, that's a very nice thing to do. A good thing to do. Certainly, in my own practice, really began very much more concerned with personal solitary meditation. Um, so the the fact that there were other people around in the monastery meditating was just a kind of circumstantial fact. Or well, so what, you know? There they are. You know, here I am doing my thing. Um, and though one could get times of, of some stillness and clarity. Uh, and, and that really there wasn't a joy in the life. And the joy, the experience of joy to me comes from when, when something you let go and opens up to something that's bigger and you're lifted up by that. That's what joy, joy isn't something you do. You don't say, how oh, I'm going to do some, do joy. joy. Joy is something that happens to you when you kind of open up into something that's larger and that involves a certain degree of trust in a certain degree of, of relinquishing your own personal boundary. Uh, for me, that, that first experience was really not through meditation, but through going on arms round. Yeah. Which is hardly, you know, in some ways it's very intimate, in some ways it's, it's, it's very aloof, because there's no personality contact. You know, it's not like, how are you doing, Joe? You know, or what do you fancy today? So do you know about a sausage <laughs> or a croissant? You know? Something nice, and so he's, you know, it's nice, rice, 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 more rice, 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 rice. (laughs) It's not what you fancy today, mate. It's like, this is my my thing, is the offering of rice. So, in some ways, very intimate because you have to get you have to get quite close in arms round. You you know, it's not sent to you remotely. You have to walk along a street in the dark, stubbing your toes on things, feeling. And feeling very exposed, and then you have to come within four arms distance of the donor, who then, you know, gently invites you over by making a gesture of respect, and then puts his food in, puts a spoonful of rice in your bowl, 
so that the, if you like the bonding is is very you know as a kind of ritual experience is very close and, and very sensitive you know, it's very very you're very there and yet you don't know who it is you don't know anything about them they don't say anything you don't even say thank you it's just you're right there and it's the thing is, partly because of that, there's no personality stuff there, the mind doesn't know what to do. It doesn't know what to do on that kind of level of, well, I'll see you this evening, Joe, or that's nice, just fancied a bit of rice today. <laughs> so it can't go through those things to, to which actually tend to um, compensate for the, the nakedness and the openness which give rise to joy. They, they shut it all down into nice domestic patterns and personality patterns. Instead, it's not it's not a personality because they do the same thing to the next month, the next nun, or whatever. They do it every day, and you bet that you, can, you can't feel like every single day, like, oh, how wonderful! There's Suchito coming along, giving some rice. Any more than every day, I walk down the road with my arms and think. Oh, how glorious, how wonderful to be getting another spoonful of rice. Oh, I never expected that. Just what I fancied. No, a lot of the time we think, oh, God, here we go, another hour and a half of this. My feet hurts. I'm fed up with rice. That's <laughs> what's going on in the mind. <laughs> I don't have to do this every day anyway. <laughs> and then you get there and there's this kind of moment of contact. You know? Oh, it's very... You open into it. There's this kind of feeling of just where joy starts to rise. And of course the irony of it is that, that something that actually is quite miraculous, your mind immediately begins to trivialise. The thinking mind just starts to see a pattern and trivialise it. Like, you know, the first day you go out, you think, what's going to happen? You know, somebody's giving some food. Wow, amazing. You, know, you, feel, you feel very kind of open and, and, and vulnerable and, and really quite delighted by it. After a week, it's, oh, there's those people down at the engineering shop. I bet that one's going to come out and give me some rice. Your mind starts trivialising, they're actually complaining about it all. The thinking mind. Because it, it hasn't actually trained itself to the pattern of this is good karma, this is a skillful action, this is a relationship of dependence. This means. I am I'm, I'm dependent on, on your actions. I'm not dependent on you as a person, but I'm dependent upon your goodness. And you, you, you do this because you see not me as a, as what a great guy I am, but that, I, that my life is about doing good actions and refraining from, good action, from, refraining from bad actions. So that kind of is, is that we both enter into that place where the, it's really the patterns of good karma are continually being established. And if you, when you don't see that, or your mind starts to jabber over the top of it, then the, the thing loses that. And yet, there's, no, it's not that you lost awareness, it's just that your, your awareness and sensitivity has gone out of kilter with the path. And this is totally normal. It's doing it all the time. So you need the structure to keep your, your awareness. It's not that you don't have awareness, but your awareness has to be aware of the right things. That's a very important point, I think, because we can you know, go on and on about the refinement of our awareness and you know, feeling this and feeling that and being really attuned to this. But it's not really about you know, the, the sensitivity so much as what are you sensitive to? Are you sensitive to, to things that lead on in good calm? Or are you sensitive to things that make you unhappy or confused or you know, greedy or neurotic. You know, the jitter, if it doesn't have that pattern to attune to, is like a mad dog howling. So, you know, particularly for myself, that, that, that was a you know, very strong part of the experience, really, was of the madness of the mind. You know, you know, totally out of control, complaining, whining, howling, moaning. Yeah. And then because of that, getting locked into that 
don't want this, don't want that, why should we have to do this, why do we have to do that, into this negativity pattern. I want to be this, I want to be that, and then you, you read a book and you get, I want to be like that, I want to be a terrorist sage living on a mountain. I want to be a kundalini yoga expert getting high on shakti. I want to be, uh, just be here now, that's all you have to do, no renunciation, no precepts. I want to do that. <laughs> Easy. You know, just think yourself into it. I want to do all this kind of fuddy-duddy, trudge around the streets with your bare feet in the morning stuff. So the, 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 the pattern, the, the training, then is something that actually your mind resists and, and, and goes against. So it's often the, the case in, in, can be the case anyway, in, in, in monasteries, you know, that, that uh, in these monasteries, everyone's reading things about Coptic Christianity, they're reading things about Krishnamurti, they're reading Calvin and Hobbes, they're reading Peanuts, they're reading Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> but nobody ever touches the suitors. <laughs> it's a little unfair, honestly. <laughs> I'm just saying there's that, that tendency because your, your own stuff is just oh, I'm going to do this all this stuff again you know <laughs> so you when I see live you have to keep weeding them out because you've got every, everything all this matter of thing and everything under the sun in it and then there's kind of pages of the scriptures with dust accumulating on them <laughs> why is that you know it's like it's so difficult for the mind when it, you know, to actually get into where we are. Yeah. And because when you live in a situation, then when the mind trivialises this monastery, you know, when you come to it, quiet. You read the visitor's book, quiet, peaceful place. Quiet, peaceful place, wonderful place, you know. Read the residence book. <laughs> <laughs> All these crazy people. Too much <laughs> Not enough chocolate. <laughs> what happened there, you know? You know, the mind goes out, because what, I think what the Buddha felt also was the people who knew him closest, the fellow samurais, were the people who gave him the hardest time, because they, they could trivialise him. As lay people would say, oh, there's an enlightened being, you know, and bow. <laughs> even, even just thinking of the Buddha, they would bow in the direction that they thought he was going in. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's the monks. One of the monks was the person who tried to kill him. <laughs> David Dutta. Because <laughs> yeah. you get that, the mind, you know, goes out to that. Goes out of touch with the, the pattern of good karma. Because you begin to see, you domesticate, and you, you, you trivialize, one trivializes the situation into the old models of a family, you know, so what's this? You know, it's a family, you get the family model with it, whatever that's about, or you get the job model, the office, the factory, or you get the army model, or you get the school model. You know, and then these things kind of play through people's minds in, in, in monasteries. They see, you know, fundamentally they're working with the, the, the colonel or the boss <laughs> or their father or, you know, or whatever. That, that, those kinds of things are, are things that do, do happen. Perhaps not all the time, but they, they're shadows that, that drift through and we easily get not caught into. But then if one can actually just keep using the form, and, and one of the advantages of a training monastery is that one, you know, the form is very much there. You know, it's laid down. This is a... You know, the time is this, we go to the evening puja, the time is this, the duties are this, the relationship is like this, you bow to this person, you bow to this at this time, these kind of formalised things that, you know, you like sometimes, you're fed up with at other times, you're out of touch with at other times, they're still there, you know, they're still there, and the, the idea is that the mind, if you keep doing it, you know, trying to get to it, and open up to it and trust it, because it is... It's a, the form is a statement that's independent of particular person, persons. You know, you're not, you're not particularly, it's not about the particular personal quality of the monk or the nun or the anagarika or the anagarika. That's both its blessing and, of course, its difficulty, because it doesn't fit me as a person. I feel awkward in it sometimes, you know. don't feel so bad in it now for 23 years, but... 
you know, monks saying, I can't stand it when people give me things because I just feel so unworthy of their offerings. You know, why should lay people give me things? I hate it when they call me bunte because I'm just, you know, I'm not really worthy of it. We take it as a personal statement. It's not about whether you as a person are worthy or not, but to allow generosity, to allow respect, to allow that, to allow that opportunity to arise, and then to, to take that in, and then really, you know, try to, try to just be grateful for that and honour honor it, rather than become it. Try to recognise the things that are worthy of respecting yourself. These, though this is these are elements, if you like, of, of right livelihood, of ways that we live with each other, and the the the, Buddha, the Buddha's teaching, Dhamma Vinaya, Vinaya, there's a lot of detail about this. It's not just a trivial kind of secondary. So what thing? It's actually quite detailed and quite explained and quite thoroughly worked out for a very good reason. That the structure is there to support awareness, not to replace it but to support it from going ways which it will go otherwise. Mm. To the kind of patterns of familiarity, negligence, uh, affliction, that it would, it would drift into otherwise. And of course the, the beauty of it is that we begin to attune to, to a, a, pat, a, a, mental, a pattern that our minds can perceive. It's not about me. You know, it's personally experienced, it's experienced intimately, it's experienced directly, you know, by me, if you like, but it's not about me as a persona, not me as an image, not me as a how I should be or how I think people, or how I think myself. It's, it's more direct, more directly me than I am. And the, the advantage of this or the way that fits in with the path with the, the, is the whole of the Eightfold Path is mutually supportive so this way of, of right living is actually conducive to mindfulness and to samadhi because with mindfulness we're just how is it is the question not do I like it or not so you know, knowing that the dull mind is the dull mind knowing the mind with afflictions is the mind with afflictions. Not, I shouldn't feel this. Not, oh, I shouldn't feel greed. But knowing the mind with greed is the mind with greed. Knowing the, you know, that kind of uh, way of looking at it. Oh, and the, the, the process of mindfulness is just like that. Knowing someone can feel kinds of confused, upset, afflicted patterns <coughs> of the mind. But you, you keep... <coughs> Through that training, you keep witnessing them as they are, rather than making projecting them outwards onto somebody out there, or projecting them inwards onto somebody in here. And that is extraordinarily difficult, unless one has trained and and drunk in and steeped oneself in this way of right livelihood, the way of good karma. Most people f- <coughs> find themselves really challenged to do that. <coughs> so that, that's why that's what it's there for. That's what the training is there for. So that when we begin to, through mindfulness, establishing samadhi, one can actually begin to to know. Well, there is there is a space. There is this. There's a viveka. There is a, an awareness space that's that is quite pure. You can, and it, you open into it. You don't, you know, crank it out. You don't sort of create it. You open into that. You trust yourself into that. You allow yourself into that. You relax into that. And that, that's the essential thing, that then you can then begin to tune and tune around in skillful ways so that gradually these factors of samadhi crystallize and constellate around that to something that has a tremendous power to, to lift awareness into, into delight, into joy, 
into rapture, into calm, and into wisdom, which is the main function of samadhi. So t- tonight we have this uh, opportunity for um, meditation practice. Yeah.